Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we interact in small enough communities, be it rural or in a city apartment building, in which we each know one another by name, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone in our community. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, it is my privilege to bring you three distinguished women, Norma Jean Almodovar, Carol Lee, and Veronica Vera, who have courageously dedicated their own lives to advancing the lives of others, namely sex workers, both here in the United States and around the world. You may text in your questions and comments at 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-825-5946. Stay tuned for this exciting and important issue on basic human rights of sex workers. By way of introduction, have you ever wondered why people who sell pleasure a.k.a. sex workers, are held by our culture in a special category of low esteem, along with perhaps chemically dependent people called disparagingly drug addicts and mentally ill people castigated as crazies. Please consider, really consider, what is the genesis of this international conspiracy to condemn females who sell sexual delights for their living. Prostitution is not the oldest profession, as is often quoted, but it may be the fourth oldest after hunting, fishing, and gathering. As far back as 1700 BCE, under the Code of Hammurabi, the property of a prostitute was protected. However, since that time, sex workers have, for most of history, been exploited dramatically and almost always by males who are their very customers. By the way, one of our distinguished guests today, Carol Lee, is universally credited with being the first to coin the word sex worker, and Medline has listed at least 65 activities in that fold. The ancient Greeks established government-supported brothels. However, once Christianity came upon the scene, the lives of sex workers have almost always been in extreme jeopardy. There have been exceptions, such as when the Greek Council of Venice in 1358 declared prostitution to be, and I quote, absolutely indispensable to the world. And then in 1547, King Henry II of France regulated prostitution. But when Pope Sixtus V came into power in 1586, He mandated the death penalty for prostitution, and it's been downhill for these downtrodden workers ever since. Fast forward 400 years, mightily suffering years, to 1932 in Japan, when the government forced somewhere between 80,000 and 300,000 women to serve in comfort battalions to provide sex for the workers and the soldiers. 
there has been no apology or restitution for these poor souls. In many countries, sex workers have been and are still institutionally whipped, beaten, raped, and murdered. Here in our United States, 68% of the sex workers have been raped. I repeat, 68% of the sex workers have been raped, and their chances of being murdered or some, are somewhere between 80 and 120 times as great as a non-sex working female. Can any of you name another occupation in which your chances of getting killed on the job are 120 times greater than average? In addition, the social stigma that our culture has placed on sex workers is one of intense ostracism, which is what some sociologists and psychologists consider to be the most severe form of human punishment, ostracism. Sex workers' children are thrown out of schools. Retired sex workers are fired when employers find out about their former occupation. Go to Google today and type in children of sex workers and see what you find. One might rightly say that sex workers and their families are treated as lepers. I now have some questions for each of you listening, and these are personal questions. If you write me, I'll answer your emails. I want to know what you have to say and what are your thoughts on these following questions. Tell me, why are sex workers placed in harm's way and debased? We don't do this to any other workers. Why are men allowed to work with their brains and their bodies and women are not? Why do we deprive women of their right to sell themselves at will so long as it is voluntary? Tell me, why do we pay women for sexual favors and then turn around and cruelly demean and attack these very same people? Why do we not thank sex workers and glorify them for the sensual delights that they provide us? I hope you're considering these questions these are important questions about a number of us, of humanity. Why are sex workers less celebrated than chefs? Why do we use religion and misguided morality to undermine the self-esteem of these hard-working women and men who are merely attempting to make a living in the world? When will we take into consideration what the stigma we attach to sex workers does to their children and their families? When will we be willing to stand up and say out loud as one people that there is nothing dirty or bad about sexual activity, which in turn implies that people who sell sex are dirty and bad? When are we as a people going to look ourselves deeply in the eye and come to grips with the fact that we ourselves are not dirty when consenting adults engage in sexual activity of any kind? Emphasis on consenting adults. Is it not true that when we say a sex worker is bad, we are saying that sex itself is bad? And perhaps most important of all, when are we going to come to realize that by criminalizing the vocation of the sex workers, we are putting their daily 
vocational lives at grave risk. I ask each of you listening, have you ever frequented the services of a sex worker? And if so, do you think that person deserves to be whipped, raped, beaten, thrown in jail, or murdered? Would any of you marry a sex worker who made $300,000 a year? How would you feel if your child married a sex worker who was a prostitute and sold products, sex products for over a million dollars a year? Does the amount of money a sex worker earns affect your attitude or about her goodness or badness as a member of our community? What word can you think of that we launch towards males that comes close to calling a woman a whore or a cunt? Might you be willing to do something to help a sex worker if she were in need? Let us now hear from our three distinguished guests who have spent their lives fighting gallantly for the dignity of women and sex workers in general. And before we hear from them, I'm going to take a bit of time to read to you some of the history of our three distinguished guests. So before listening to them, you will have a sense of the enormity of their contribution. Norma Jean Almodova is an American author and sex workers advocate and activist. Norma Jean worked as a traffic officer for 10 years, and in 1982, she quit her job with the Los Angeles Police Department and began working as a call girl. In 1984, she was arrested and convicted and thrown in jail. In 1986, Norma Jean ran for lieutenant governor in the California gubernatorial election as a libertarian. In 1993, her autobiography, Cop to Call Girl, was published by the very prominent Simon & Schuster. Norma Jean is the founder of the International Sex Worker Foundation for Art, Culture, and Education, and since 2012, she has served as the executive director of the Los Angeles branch of the sex workers' rights organization, COYOTE, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, founded by my dear departed friend, Margot St. James. Next, Veronica Vera. Veronica is a human sexuality writer and actress. She's best known for her films Times Square Comes Alive, Gerard Damiano's Consenting Adults, Mondo New York, and Rites of Passion, as well as her work with the world-famous photographer Robert Maplethorpe. Veronica is a former Wall Street trader and is also known for running the very famous cross-dressing school, Miss Vera's Finishing School for Boys Who Want to Be Girls, on which she wrote a book, Miss Vera's Finishing School for Boys Who Want to Be Girls, published by the famous Doubleday in 1997. you got to go to Google and read about this school. It's the greatest. Our third guest, Carol Lee, also known as the Scarlet Harlot. After obtaining a B.A. in creative writing in 1977, she started working as a prostitute. A rape caused her to become active in sex workers' rights, and she joined Coyote. Remember, call off your old, tired ethics. In 1983, she wrote 
a one-woman satirical play, The Scarlet Harlot, which she performed at the National Festival of Women's Theater. She joined the AIDS activist organization Citizens for Medical Justice and organized many demonstrations and press conferences while collaborating with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Lee has received awards from the American Film Institute for Yes Means Yes, No Means No, Outlaw Poverty, Not Prostitutes, and Mother's Mink. In 1999, she founded the Sex Worker Film and Arts Festival. In 1993, she was one of the main contributors to the San Francisco Task Force on Prostitution. In 2006, she received a grant from the Creative Work Fund to establish, in collaboration with the Center for Sex and Culture, the Sex Worker Media Library. And of course, as I said before, she's credited with coining the term sex worker. She did that at a conference of women against violence in pornography and media. A hearty welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Norma Jean, Veronica, and Carol. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Thank you for the great intro. Yes. Thank you. You're very welcome. So I'd like each of you to make an introductory statement, anything you want to say based on what I just said or based on anything that uh, you'd like to have our listeners hear. Why don't you go first, uh, Veronica? Okay. All right. Well, um, I am also a doctor of human sexuality, um, and I really... Uh, from what you said, um, I'm working now on a memoir, and, a, and for me, the things that you said about the church and religion, um, I feel that my uh, work in terms of um, standing up for women's rights, our rights to do what we want with our bodies, really came from early uh, uh, repression from religion, uh, and that was what you know. Uh, what really inspired me, knowing right from the beginning that um, I wanted to experience the pleasure in my body, being told that was wrong, and not understanding why it was wrong, and completely disagreeing with it. And that's kind of how I started with uh, off right off the bat, associating with the idea of women who were called quote whores, um, and associating like, oh, well, I don't know. It seems like these women have some answers that I want to hear about. So, um, yeah. So for me, religion is the big, the big abuser. Thank you. Carol, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, let's see. Well, my life has been focused on sex worker rights, activism and arts since I started doing sex work in the late seventies and coined the term sex work. And, um, I'm at the age of 70 now, um, also a cancer patient. I'm working on reviewing, looking at the movement in total. And I've had many experiences all over the world. And, and I've been very interested in the development of the sex worker rights movement. And I, there are so many ideas and there's so much diversity among sex workers that it's, it's even hard to talk about you know, the sex worker, but I'm, I, I, I want to. Part of what I do, I do glorify sex workers. I think that that's that is needed, and I'm, 
um, maybe in the in the model of Griselidis Real in Switzerland, a, a great artist who's a sex worker that many people know about. So um, I'm focused on sex worker art. I've I've run a film festival, sex worker film and arts festival for about 20 years, and um, and I do a lot of teaching, and I'm just very involved in uh, participating in various sex worker rights organizations. Thank you. Hi, Noma Jean. Hi. Okay, so, well, you know, my my days of activism traveling around the world, um, actually the last thing I did was travel to China when I was a de an NGO delegate to the Women's Conference in Beijing. And at that conference, we encountered some of the <laughs> well-known uh, anti-prostitution activists like uh, Melissa Farley and Donna Hughes. And th there were five sex worker activists there. Um, and, and during the time that we were there, we worked really, really hard on inserting a paragraph into the platform for action. And the original paragraphs that, that was there said, all prostitution is incompatible with the dignity and worth of the human person and must be eliminated. That, prostitution and pornography. They, they included pornography. So the five of us worked for two weeks lobbying the various people and we, we changed the paragraph by one word. It now, at the end of the conference, they voted on it and the words was all forced pornography and prostitution are incompatible. We got that in the platform for action and that was like an amazing accomplishment. The problem was that when we got back home the abolitionists were out there in force saying, it doesn't matter, it's all force. We're all prostitution, all pornography. Women cannot choose to be sexual, essentially is what they were saying. And anyone who says they are is just completely, um, well, they don't know what they're talking about because they can't choose. So essentially from that time forward, they've been putting out all of these really radical concepts that people get really freaked out about, like, for example, sex trafficking. And they claim between 100,000 and 300,000 children are being trafficked into prostitution every year. And when all of these lies, and that's what they are, started coming out and changing people's opinions about prostitution and like, oh my God, this is horrible. 100,000, 300,000 children, whoo. So I started doing research. And so basically, because right now I take care of my, my disabled husband and I don't go anywhere except at my computer and all the facts and statistics are out there that I can find from the FBI, from government sources and not from these radical feminists. I found that all of these things were not true. And essentially they were just pulling numbers out of their posteriors, quite honestly. And so I started putting together what I call Operation Do the Math. I mean, the FBI uses Operation Do to something or other anytime they conduct a sting, Operation, you know, Cancel Children, Operation whatever. So we, I did the Operation Do the Math and it's on my website, Police, Prostitution and Politics. And the work that I put together takes all of the statistics every year from the government and puts them in a format where people can not only click on the link to the FBI website where I got the information, but I add all of them, the numbers up 
so that people can see the actual numbers. And the actual numbers are so different. In fact, let me just read one of them. You're talking about 100,000 to 300,000 children. Let's see. From, 19, from 2014 to 2019, there were 102 confirmed children trafficked into prostitution. 102, that's six in 2014, uh, three in 2018, 49 in 2000, uh, excuse me, that was 2015, 2016, 49, 2017 was 14, 2018 was 18, and 2019 was 12. So how one can extrapolate from those numbers and come up with 100,000 to 300,000 children, well, it, it doesn't make any sense because let's say these numbers 1.81% of all arrests of children, uh, of all arrests for prostitution are, are children, 1.81%. So that means that the majority of people arrested for prostitution are adults. Now you think, okay, well, one of the other arguments that the abolitionists make is that, that ch child prostitutes are forced to see between 10 and 25 men a day. 10 to 25 men a day, that's what they say. Well, you know, when I was working... I would be lucky if I saw two or three men a day, and I'm sure that most sex workers would love it if they would get 10, but you know, on a, in a consistent basis. So when you start to do the math and you say, well, wait a second, if there's 100,000 children and they see 10 to 25 a day, how many men do we need in order to accommodate <laughs> them? And if they're only 1.81% of all you know, prostitutes, how many men do we need to accommodate the adults? So then you start doing the math and you come up with you need billions and billions of men. So my question is always, where are we going to get them? We got to import them from Mars. That's very good. So that's well, the work I do now. To segue onto that, you know, there's a belief in our culture that, and I think you're alluding to it, that women who go into sex work come from parents who are drug addicts, parents who are mentally ill, and their childhood has been terrible. What, you three are experts on this. What can you tell us about the variation of the backgrounds of people who go into sex work uh, in the current era? Well, I can say I was born and raised in a fundamental Baptist family. I have I have 13 brothers and sisters. I was enrolled in Philadelphia College of the Bible. I was gonna be a missionary. I was a straight A student. I was in the accelerated classes. I've never done drugs. I don't drink, I don't smoke. The only thing I ever did was spread my legs for money. That's the, the most heinous thing I could possibly do according to society. So, so all of those theories about how we are all you know, from these horrible backgrounds. It just doesn't ring true to all of us or most of us or any of us. And um, so I had even mentioned before, you know, sex workers are so diverse. And I think you always have to look at the statistics as Norma Jean teaches um, and see, you know, where they're from. And I think there's a lot of kind of political uh, um, goals for statisticians and usually it's sort of anti-sex work goals. So. So I, I do think it's always important to recognize the diversity. Each locale may have uh, different populations of sex 
workers. At the same time, more than anything, I mean, I know as an early sex worker, I was very busy saying, oh, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not poor. You know, and there's so much stigma placed on individuals um, and, and, and people who have backgrounds that are, are more marginalized and sex workers suffer it the most. So as we're moving ahead, our movement is always um, needs to be very conscious and, and, and the general public, too, of not portraying that dire condition as, you know, as, as, as something that would just make people afraid of us and, and, and that we just have to explain diversity, great diversity, more than people seem to be able to understand. And, and you know, you, now you're seeing also a lot of um, black and brown sex workers becoming more, being more activists, um, you know, and it used to be people would think of like the sex workers rights movement as a, as a movement of, of white women. Um, and, and now that's changed so much because uh, black and brown uh, sex workers, black and brown, especially trans sex workers as well, are speaking out. And, and, and you have to look at also how economies change too. Um, because part of the re the things that are lifting people up and giving them the platform and ability to speak up for themselves uh, and their rights as sex workers is that uh, economically things are getting better, uh, educationally wise, people uh, things are getting better for people. So um, yeah, so the diversity of those spokespeople of the movement is changing as well, and always sex workers have been a very diversified group and now we're seeing it more and more which is great now when you three are saying a diversified group that means you're as the sex workers are as, um, as diversified as any other group meaning some of them do come from childhoods who are really terrible and some of them come from childhoods who are wonderful and everything in between is that what you're all saying absolutely yep yep yeah well and, said. and what about the public perception that sex workers, in order to do sex work, are always under the influence of some drugs. And they have to be, otherwise they wouldn't be doing this. Well, please comment on that. Uh, in addition to your own experience, I heard you, Norma Jean uh, and Carol, that you don't, you, that's not your experience. But what about uh, what you know of other sex workers? What can you tell us about the prevalence of having to use things in, in order to g do this, uh, quote, dirty business? Well, I can say that when I was working for the LAPD, there were an awful, awful lot of my colleagues then who drank a lot, who smoked a lot, and who did illicit drugs. In fact, when you went to a cop party, the cops had all the drugs that they had confiscated from the people that they arrested, and they were doing drugs. Some of the cops came to work being drugged out. So I think that People using, you know, whether it's a stimulant or, you know, a downer, whatever. I think that runs the gamut for so many other people in so many other businesses. Look at Wall Street. How many of those guys are doing cocaine? So what you're saying, Norma Jean, is that the hypocrisy that we see so prevalent amongst leadership in our country is the same hypocrisy that we're dealing with with regard to sex workers, namely the very cops who are anti-prostitution and anti-sex worker are doing the very thing that they're accusing the sex worker of doing. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? And you worked for the police department. That's what I'm saying. Ten years I worked for them, and now I collect stories of cops who you know, hire prostitutes, rape prostitutes, and all that. I collect all their stories, 
And it's just, it's like people just don't get it. I mean, prostitution is not going to go away. And the more you repress it, the more corruption you have. And I would think that people would want a police department and a justice system where there is actual justice and where the police are not engaging in as many crimes as the people they arrest for those very same activities. Uh, I, I would like to uh, say, you know, I, I, when I try to figure out, you know, which population of prostitutes uses which drugs and, and what's that all about? And, you know, have the drugs been brought into the community through governments? Or, you know, all the questions about drugs. I mean, I don't really know. Now, some of my friends were, you know, middle class, kind of maybe more adventurous women. I mean, I smoke pot. I'm not saying I'm not a drug user. I, I, I said, you know, when I was young, I was like, oh, I don't use drugs. But, but you know, the reality is like, you know, I use all kinds and, um, you know, LSD I would try. So, uh, and I, but there's just so many different relationships various communities of sex workers have to drugs. But I also want to say something about this idea about diversity and that uh, sex workers situations run uh, the greatest diversity. I think it's, it's important that our movement and in general through anthropology, I feel like we need to understand that various relationships between sex work and poverty. And from an anti-prostitution perspective, people are, are often talking about, you know, it's all about poverty and there wouldn't be a prostitution without it. And I don't think that even our movement has looked into what the link is also. And I, I just, I think that's something society needs to understand better. Make the, just say that again, the link between what and what were you saying? Well, I've... the link between prostitution, I mean, I use sex work, prostitution, because okay. I'm older. But the link between prostitution and poverty, we and need poverty. to look at what that is, right? Where it's, how it manifests, what the variations of it are, and, and sometimes I'll be, and the context in which poverty, and, and there's needing money, and there's poverty. So what about that continuum? And our movement hasn't quite been able to delve into and I haven't seen it in, in the academy as well. So I think that's an important subject. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very big picture, too, because you hear people say like, well, you know, I was, I, you know, I'm a sex worker and I'm making more money than I would as a secretary. You know, I'm making more than you know, I would uh, as a stocking shelves in, in uh, Target. So, uh, you know, so there's definitely the economic element, but um, and it's important to look at that. But there's also the thing that comes in with the idea of like, well, but oh, you chose but sex work, but that's still so terrible. And, and then you have to, it intersects with how people feel about sex in general, about, you know, keeping sex for marriage and keeping sex for making babies. And, and in, in, um, in, the, in the movement, we believe that the uh, uh, women have, we have the right for sex for recreation for uh, uh, re reproduction or for remuneration. It's a three-pronged uh, three, uh, three stool. <laughs> so we hear so often from professional athletes, uh, baseball players or basketball and so on, people who play sports and get paid a lot, that how much they love what they do. You know, they're just so happy to be playing baseball and getting paid for it. So make some comments, please, on what percentage, what, what, how many people are motivated to go into sex work 
simply because they love sex, they really enjoy it, and they think, what the heck, this is something I like to do, and if I can get paid for it, well, that's a great thing. What, what's your, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? I think that it, it varies so much by every individual. I mean, for me, I needed to make, to earn a living. And I was already giving away sex to cops. I mean, I went through a whole lot of cops before, <laughs> really bad lovers in bed. And, and the interesting thing was when a captain was retiring, a couple of the cops offered me $200 if I would ha have sex with the retiring captain. And I said, if I'm going to be a prostitute, I'm going to do it for myself, not for you guys. But I think it just so, so depends on the individual and, and what motivates them. I mean, I enjoyed being a sex worker. I enjoyed my work. Did I like every client I had? No, not really. But I like the work overall because I think on a scale of one to 10, if murder's the worst thing you can do to your fellow human being, giving them an orgasm has got to be one of the best things you can do. <laughs> I remember Norma Jean in our first interview some years ago, you told me how the cops in the locker room, before you went into sex work, they were forcing you to give them blowjobs in the locker room. And you said, what the hell, if they're going to force me to do that for free, I might as well start charging them. Well, I don't know that it was so much force as it was expected. Expected. Uh-huh. Okay. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. For, for me, um, you know, I think uh, I when I started uh, getting involved in the sex biz, as I say, I, I had uh, I had a nest egg. I had worked in Wall Street area, and I had I had some money, but I got involved as a writer, um, and I met other people who were. And, and writing for a sex magazine. And through that, I met other people who were also involved exploring human sexuality and especially other women. So for me, it became, you know, uh, part of it was be having, getting um, an allies, you know, the camaraderie of the other people who really wanted to uh, get rid of sexual ignorance. It was, there was some idealism involved and it was fun. For me, it was a big adventure to go from being a little repressed uh, Catholic girl um, and then, you know, like a, a someone who was a, a bachelorette around town giving it away to like just jump in and jumping in with some friends, you know, uh, Annie Sprinkle and I became friends right away. Um, uh, other porn stars and I became friends. So I always say it wasn't men that got me into the business. It was the women. It was the camaraderie of the women. And I think, you know, a lot of people, we, you know, you build your own support system, you build your own families, uh, your own families. And that is part of what keeps, uh, you know, what encourages people to explore sex um, from what, whichever avenue they do. Uh, but when I, I was not... Um, uh, I was a sexual adventurous, but I was just kind of always working out my sexuality. And uh, so in a way, I, 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 was, I was fascinated with prostitution. But, you know, I dare say now, I mean, I am a very privileged prostitute. I think also as an activist, and I think, you know, all of us, there's a spec even additional privilege um, to, to speaking now from this perspective. I do have a lot of sex positive friends. And um, I, uh, but and sometimes I've seen with other people that it's uh, directly kind of inversely proportional to maybe how you are how forced you feel economically. So it, it's I think that's a very interesting subject. You know how, how many are so sex positive? I, I, I don't. Whenever I see the 
for me, it was also I was fascinated with sexual politics. And I see that in my friends. But I certainly see a lot of women who are just fascinated with sex, too. This is my group. One of the things I'd like to bring up about whether or not people in the prostitution are sex positive, how many people who have to clean up the urine, feces, and vomit of complete strangers earning minimum or less wages an hour, how many of those people are are cleanup positive? How many of them really love their work scrubbing toilets? And and yet we don't try to outlaw or ban people from engaging in that kind of activity if that's the only kind of work they can find. That's true. So I'd like the three of you to talk from your personal experiences about something I mentioned in my introduction, which was the danger of being a sex worker. You heard me say about the the inordinate uh, number of of deaths percentage-wise and the and the and the beatings and the whippings and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Please comment uh, for our listeners about about what you know personally and what you've heard about from your interviews and your work about the dangers so that our listeners know about the dangers of this kind of work. Well, first of all, again, let's do some statistics. Again, the FBI posts all of this information on their website. And let me give you the statistics from 1991 to 2019. All right, these are the numbers of murders by circumstances. Prostitutes, death, homicides. This is from 1991 to 2019, was 326. Law enforcement deaths homicides was 1,637. Children killed by babysitters was 891. People murdered during rapes was 1,371. And murdered during a romantic triangle was 4,254. And that's, again, from 1991 through 2019. Whether or not that includes all of the people that were murdered, all the prostitutes that have been murdered. And there have been a lot, and that is a horrible thing. But the, the, the numbers and, and the overwhelming statistics that people cite just don't show up in the numbers that are reported by law enforcement to FBI and that the FBI posts on their website. So again, these are the actual numbers from government. So what you're saying is that the number of deaths of prostitutes, on-the-job deaths, is much lower than what we're being told. I believe so. And it's not that those, those deaths are not important. They are very important. The problem is do, when, when someone is murdered, how do the cops follow up on these? They don't. In fact, when you know the police have a term for a murdered prostitute, they call them NHIs, no humans involved. And that's, that's absolutely abominable that they would even consider that a prostitute's murder was not important at all. And, and just, it's not a human being, so what do we care? We have to look at the reality and not say, okay, look at all these people that are getting murdered in prostitution. Well, no, let's look at the ones that are getting murdered who are not getting justice. And why is it that the cops feel that they can call a murdered prostitute not human? But do you th- is it the case or is it not the case that compared to uh, an office worker, prostitutes get hit 
more often by by clients. Probably, but compared to cops and compared to women that are involved in a in a romantic triangle, no, we're not even up in the top numbers. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of more dangerous activities for women than there are, you know, that, than prostitution actually is. And and the thing is, what all three of us have been trying to do is make sex work safer by making it possible for us to. Uh, have someone on the outside know where we are at all times and someone maybe even a driver unfortunately if you're a sex worker and you have a driver who takes you to your work and is outside and, and has a phone and has phone contact with you that person can be charged with sex trafficking which is a felony which can send them to prison for a long time we've got to change these laws so that if you will have someone on the outside who is making sure that you're safe that they're not penalized for it so those are the things we have to work on is making sex work safer by decriminalizing all consenting adult commercial sex right and so it's the laws really that are the most, the biggest danger to sex workers, the laws against uh, against sex work. And another thing also that contributes, I think, to sex workers being thought of as throwaway people is the way so many TV and movie stories ha kill off prostitutes. It's, you know, it's part of the drama. Um, it, recently, there's a, there's a new um, uh, documentary about transgender through the uh, the media called um, uh, I, I can't remember the sorry dis disclosure disclosure okay so in it the transgender people who are speaking they say oh as a, a performer in the movies I was always either dying in bed as a transgender person or I was already murdered and that's how it is with prostitutes where there's so many people in in, in crime stories the dead prostitute, the dead prostitute. And it's enough, enough people, you know, producers are getting rich on dead prostitutes. Wow, I think about that every night too. Uh, you know, I think there is a lot of good work uh, in academia research that examines uh, prostitution repressive systems, for instance, might compare the United States to New Zealand, where sex work is decriminalized. And so this the work shows, you know, in, and in systems where they target the clients, there's so much more danger for sex workers. And I do think there's an enormous amount of, of good research uh, validating that uh, but it, you don't really see it in the, in the media and I, I don't think it's gotten around although in academia I think that they're very clear about that but as far as I mean when I think about dangers for sex workers I'm also concerned I, I have a helpline people call sometimes and I'm always hearing about child custody issues where you could have this abusive husband and he might get child custody because you're a stripper something like that you know i hear that so often and then i hear about you know people who are whose families will eject them evict them because they're sex workers and and and, and trans people talking about how they can't find other options because they're stigmatized and so I do hear, you know, and then they're more stigmatized and more likely to be arrested. And I, I, I do hear a lot about the struggles, you know, in this criminalized situation. So stigmatized. Th cool. There's been 
Did you want to say something, Veronica? Yeah, well, I was, it was just having to do with the idea of sex positivism. So not according, not, uh, but okay. So the idea of sex positivism and pleasure, you know, there's this idea of pleasure activism um, and what we, how we learn about ourselves by exploring our sexuality. And to me, that's what sex positivism is about, thinking of exploring our sexualities as a guide to learn who we are as human beings and accept who we are as human beings and other people. And, and say, for instance, the people who come to my academy, a lot of them are, are, are adults coming from the world of straight men, and they have feelings that are uh, confusing to them because when they uh, cross-dress, they feel that they might they they want to be attractive to other men but only in their feminine modes but exploring that part of their sexuality is very frightening to them because it might mean giving up the male privilege that they've had and so when we get into this idea of exploring pleasure and sexuality then we have to look at you know shaking up society people feeling you know losing the privileges they have and uh uh and 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 this is why people hide want to hide their sexuality and and who can reveal everyone's sexuality the prostitute the sex worker so we have to keep her down we have to keep sex workers down because they could spill the beans on everybody you know so um that's another reason why sex workers get repressed yeah uh, honestly you mentioned your school there, and I'd like you to get into a plug. Tell our listeners how they can find out more information about your school, Veronica. Oh, sure. It's Just go to the web, MissVera.com, www.MissVera.com. And uh, right now we're not doing in-person classes during COVID, but, um, and I've written actually three books about my school, so you can find plenty of information about all of those things. Uh, throw, give us the name of one of the books. Uh, well, the second, the th the most recent one is Miss Vera's Cross Gender Fun for All, encouraging everyone to find a, uh, to a cross gender self, and the motto there is Bye Bye Binary. You know, we're at the, uh, the end of the gender binary. Can you do your school on Zoom? The way universities and colleges are. Uh, we're actually we're we're starting to do it on Zoom now. Yes. And MissVera.com is my website. And the, the and, and the name of the school is Boys Who Want to Be... Miss, Miss Vera's Finishing School for Boys Who Want to Be Girls. Oh, it sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm thinking of making it more like uh, Miss Vera's Cross-Gender Academy now because... Uh, you know, boys who want to be girls, there's more, there's more flexibility also. You know, there are girls who want to be boys. There are people who want to, you know, uh, you know, I, I, people want to explore all avenues. And, and, you, and I don't believe we have to stay in one, uh, in one gender. You know, for women, I mean, we had, we had a lot of freedom because we were so put down for so long you know, um, that we got to explore ourselves more than, than men. You know, they, men have had uh, power, and, uh, but they had to stay in emotional straitjackets. Women, you know, we've, we've been able to like to, to explore and to rise economically. We're still fighting for more, but part of, you know, anyway, that's, <laughs> you I could go on and on and on, but I'm, I, you're doing I'm, well, you're doing great. You <laughs> mentioned that you got a doctorate for, in human sexuality. Did you get it from the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality in San Francisco? I did, I did. Un, under, yes, under Wardell Pomeroy? 
Uh, no, not Wardell, Ted McIlvaney. Under Ted McIlvaney? Yes, I know mm-hmm. him. I, I took the SARS course many years ago, and it was, uh, it was wonderful, the uh, 10-day course on sexual attitude restructuring, and it really uh, opened up my consciousness a great deal. Uh, for those of you listening, this school, uh, the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, was started by Waldell Pomeroy, who came to San Francisco from the Kinsey Institute because the original Kinsey research was Kinsey, Pomeroy, and Martin. And uh, he was one of the founders and then started this wonderful school in San Francisco uh, that taught uni- uh, human sexuality. And as you hear, uh, Veronica Vera got a PhD from that school. Um, I, I, I want to move on to uh, to another topic now, uh, pornography. Uh, I had a, uh, a medical sociologist uh, as a guest uh, some years ago who uh, embedded herself in the pornography uh, uh, occupation and profession in order to, and then uh, published some work on it. And uh, she came back and, and uh, talked to me about some, uh, some pretty startling stories and uh, I, I, that's only one person's view, and I'd like to hear uh, uh, from the three of you uh, what you can share about the nature of the work, the nature of the work for the women who go into pornography. Is this a decent job? Is it a decent way to make a living? Is it a dangerous way to make a living? Uh, are there problems with it? Uh, can you support it? What can you three say about the uh, occupation of uh, of uh, making you know making a living as a, a pornographic uh, uh, actress. I have one funny thing to say about that. I, I could I could say more, but I'll just say one funny thing. Um, so Annie and I, Annie Sprinkle and I, went to the Second World Horse Congress in Brussels in 1986, uh, where both uh, and that was right after I met Margot. So there were all kinds of sex workers there and. We thought being porn stars, we were at the top of the pecking order until we heard from women who were call girls and other, you know, who were doing it more privately. They thought we were at the bottom of the barrel because we were so <laughs> open about it. So, so it really, you know, it, it really gave us a little lesson to not be so on, on our high horses, so to speak. Oh, that they they thought you were the, uh, they looked down because you were you were exposing yourself to the world, doing what they were doing in private. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh, yes. Uh-huh. So there's a pecking order, as you were saying before. There's diversity, but what about the the modern woman who's considering going into por- pornography uh, as an occupation? What can you offer us about that? I would like to talk about my little pornographic career, but Norma Jean, go ahead. I, I'm seeing, I, I always jump in. I, I'm sorry. Okay, so do I. No, fortunately, porn is now legal to do. Back when I was on the police department, it was illegal. Um, and the cops used to go out and confiscate all these porn movies, which, by the way, they used to show at the parties where they were also using the drugs that they had confiscated. Well, back uh, when I had been arrested, one of the things that my husband and I wanted to do back then was we wanted to make videos of how to have really good sex. That was our plan, but under the law, that would have been prostitution. So back before Hal Freeman filed his lawsuit, which ultimately overturned the prostitution laws, my husband and I filed a lawsuit with First Amendment attorney Stanley Fleischman. And um, unfortunately for me, um, by the time the 
California court got around to responding to it and saying, you know, I was already back in prison. I was hoping to save myself from, you know, prison. I was hoping that pandering would be overturned. Um, but, but his, our lawsuit was declared moot, but fortunately Hal Freeman's lawsuit won the day and prostitution or pornography was then decriminalized. But I mean, it's just a job, just like prostitution. It's not something that I wanted to do. Um, because I'm a private person and I'm really not interested. I mean, that's one of the reasons I didn't want to become an actress either. Even though I met a lot of movie stars and producers when I was on the LAPD. Um, it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to do things publicly sexual. I like to do them with a person in private and that, that's my preference, but other people find being in, in pornography, not any different than working on a movie set, a regular movie set. Well, I'm trying to get a sense of the working conditions. That's what my question is going. Because the sociologists led us to believe that some of the conditions were okay and in some of the conditions were really brutal and the women were coming away bleeding, particularly from anal. And she was very graphic about that and that they weren't being treated very well at all. So I I'm... I mean, unfortunately, people who run businesses can't aren't, aren't always um, pillars of the community. They're not always scrupulous about what they do or who they hire or how they treat people that they hire. I mean, that is true of so many occupations. So I, I would say that it would stand to reason that that would be similar to, to other jobs that people in pornography would find conditions to be untenable. Well, also, I think the legal situation, I'm sure you'd agree, makes it uh, more likely that exploitative people would be there, puts the worker in a more vulnerable situation. So, of course, there's that. There's a range. I'm not an expert, but time to. I would like to promote my pay job. I make the best pornography. I, I'm a fabulous pornographer for, for money, too. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, pornyoga.com orgasmicyoga.com and eroticmassage.com. And I've been working for them as an editor and it's, it's sexual health, but the best, I'm so proud. Oh, we have rights of passion even on, on the website. Oh, great. <laughs> and um, I think that I see a lot of uh, women owned uh, uh, erotic media companies. It's very exciting. It's very hard. My boss, Joseph Kramer, uh, he's an excellent businessman and sort of a legend in the community, and he knows so much about about sex and freedom and, and, and expression, and I've been fortunate to work for him. So I just, uh, just want to encourage everyone just to look out there what there is uh, in, in porn, and you just find a lot of really creative, helpful, helpful porn, especially, oh, yoga of sex. Go there, too. Yeah, give it. What is the overall website for people to go to? Well, see, we have five. That this is this is my job. I have others for myself, but, oh, but this is it's fabulous. So they, if they start at pornyoga.com, pornyoga.com, okay, pornyoga.com and orgasmicyoga.com, orgasmicyoga listeners.com, recommended and, and by, yoga of sex, 
and, the and yoga. yoga of sex. And, okay. and I've made most of the movies there. So, now, uh, now, those are the ones that you work for. Now, do you have, you, yes. do you mention you have some personal websites to mention to the listeners? Oh, please, yes. Well, no, I also, I made a porn movie, my porn art movie, Totally Exposed. Fabulous. I would have liked to do it more, but didn't have, maybe. No, never mind. Um, and but I, I think there's a, I have a lot of websites, so I think I'll just direct people to sexworkermedialibrary.org. Fabulous library. Sex media. Sex work, worker. Sex, sex worker. Worker media library. Dot org. Dot org. Okay. And I, it, all my sites are there, but you my, some of them. But you can also find collateral damage in that list of my trafficking uh, material that I've been working on for ten years, and I'm most proud of that that project. So, Sex Worker Media Library, the trafficking material, you'll see it. And if people want to know where I get the statistics, they can go to my website, policeprostitutionandpolitics.com, and everything has. A, a link to the original source, unlike the abolitionist websites, which just completely ignore where they got it. They just make statements and, and there's no no basis for what they say. So police, prostitution and politics dot com. Police, prostitution and politics dot com, everybody. And the other one is sex workers media library sex worker no plural uh sex worker worker media library library.org for carolee's work or dot com or dot com okay they'll find it they'll (laughs) They'll find it they won't have any trouble okay um yes well i don't know if there's any more that uh, anyone wanted to say about uh about pornography um uh I was reading last night about uh, a new pornography coming out of England called Fans, Fans Only, where uh, women are making, one woman made $3 million the first year, and what they're doing is um, they're selling uh, pictures of themselves, but not doing sex acts necessarily, but doing the lingerie or doing sex talk, but there's something different about it because they're communicating directly with men who sign up by the month in order to be able to communicate with them directly. It's sort of like a combination of chat and Instagram, and uh, they get subscribers, and they never leave their homes, and they're making big money, and they're not doing sex acts themselves but showing themselves. Carol, you've heard something about that? Fans only? Oh, only fans. Only fans. Sure. Only um, fans. No, I, only yes, fans. Yes, I mean, I, I actually, I'm just a spectator in that whole phenomenon. I, I, I know that that's how people are making money. My friends are making money, but I haven't, I don't have the details on that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I want to know. I want to know. So we, okay. we'll have somebody on your show. From we'll, we'll find out more. Only fans, though, if you want to check into that. Um, you know, all of us here are sort of... Uh, how to put it diplomatically, uh, uh, getting on in years. And so, uh, as you, you actually gave your age in the beginning, Carol, delightfully. Uh, so I, my question here is, what can you tell us about geriatric sex work? Is there work for older women uh, in, 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 the, in the sex trade? I see you're shaking your head, Norma Jean. Please tell us about what you might call geriatric sex work. 
Well, I'm a, I'm I'll be 70 this year too, but I and and if I wanted to, I could probably do sex work again, but I just don't have the energy or the time because I take care of my husband, but there are women out there. I had a friend who works up in Canada. She was like 75 and still seeing clients. So it, it it's still possible because what men are seeking is not necessarily a young, beautiful, svelte body, but they're seeking someone who's mature and has knowledge of human sexuality, know, knows how to give pleasure. I mean, it's just, yes, it's absolutely possible for women in their 70s to continue to do sex work. And, and why not? Well, uh, it's so it's not necessarily like either what we fantasize, your, your, your career is over when you're 27, or what uh, the other baseball players and some of the, the other athletes, because you could also call sex workers sexual athletes, uh, and, uh, but it doesn't necessarily end in your 20s is what you say. You could go on and on. Oh, yeah. I didn't a... sex work until I was in my 30s, and I worked, you know, I can't say how long, but I worked until, you know, my 40s and stuff, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, you don't have to give up your career in sex work just because you get older. You but, have clients. Especially that, if you're a dominatrix, dominatrix, an older dominatrix. Oh, yeah. No problem there. No problem there. Say something. Tell, tell our listeners. Office. Tell our listeners you're smiling about uh, uh, some more about the, the, profe- the, the specialty within sex work of being a dominatrix, Veronica. Well, I think th- there's a few things. I think uh, in, in domination, it's sex as theater. Uh, and also the, the other, another powerful element is giving permission, giving people permission to have the sex that they, the kind of sex that they want. So there's two things that make uh, domination very uh, attractive. For me, the first uh, kind of sex that I really explored after becoming, you know, after when I started to explore sex, I wanted to explore BDSM because to me it was like the perfect segue from from Catholicism and the, all of that religious repression. So, uh, you know, so it was a, a perfect segue, and I think it, it that's part of the power of it. You know, that it fits in with uh, with everything that we learned earlier, and uh, and and you know, so dominant. BDSM, it also, it goes back to a lot of things that are from childhood. So it, it um, so it's a very powerful and, and you can be very creative with it, or you can, you know, so there are some very, very creative dominant people. There are also people who will just get to take a script from someone and just follow along with whatever the person who's paying wants, wants you know, so it runs it, like everything else. It, it can run, run the gamut. So, but, uh, yeah, it's... for our listeners who are a little uh, uncertain, please uh, say what BDSM stands for. Bond, BDSM is bondage, discipline, uh, and sadomasochism. So, and it, sadomasochism usually it, it involves some kind of you think of it as corporal punishment, where there's some kind of corporal punishment or deprivation. So and, it's uh, yeah. And if somebody's listening to this and they say, "Well, that sounds interesting. I'd like to give it a try," uh, are they going to get hurt? Well, there, there, um, there are safe rules. Like one of the, there's actually a whole etiquette involved. You know, you can you can Google etiquette for SM play. Um, I think going to the the um, the Center for Sex and Culture, they run great great events. Carol was talking about um, how uh, there are different 
sex shops run by women. A lot of these sex shops, not so much now because of COVID, but sex shops will give uh, uh, talks. You know, they'll be they'll have an expert in who'll give you you know an ex uh, her expertise uh, on on how to be a dominant. And usually, there's a one of the big things is to say you know before you start SM play, you have a co uh, a safe word so that if it goes too far, someone employs a safe word like yellow, you know, and so you know it's time to stop. But there is an etiquette, there are rules, you know, to follow to, to maintain safety, just like with the other aspects of life. <laughs> now, you mentioned COVID, so I, we've got a to, oh, is that your lovely little cat? Yes, that's my pussy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, tell us about sex work in the era of a pandemic called COVID, how, what are sex workers doing? How, what's happening to the business? What can you tell us about that? Did I lose you there, um, Norma Jean? You got, uh, oh, you put, you're on mute. Yeah. No, I said a lot of sex workers are doing e-sex where they do it just like we're talking on Zoom, only they have sexual activity that they they perform on themselves they have sex talk and i think there's an awful lot of them that have found that this is the a much easier way to work than actually having to get dressed and go somewhere so they're doing virtual sex virtual sex electronic sex whatever you want to call it i mean if you can see all sex takes place in the mind mm. that's where it takes place it's you know the rest of your body follows along but if your mind isn't there it's not going to happen and so if you can get to somebody's mind by visual on camera uh by words by you know typing them whatever then that's going to get somebody aroused and that's just as good almost sometimes better <laughs> than physical person sex because you know, there's, you don't have to travel anywhere and the, the client doesn't have to get dressed and be on time or whatever else. It's, you know, for a lot of sex workers doing e-sex, if you have access to computers and the internet and cameras, I mean, it's, it's the way to go for a lot of people. I, I'm, I'm just trying to picture people who are doing it in vivo with masks or without masks or with who knows what that they're, you know, because all the other occupational groups around the town where I work in, you know, they uh, live in, they're all trying to figure out some way to operate, right? The, the restaurants are trying to do outdoor restaurants. The, the, uh, the beauty parlors here are doing outdoor beauty parlors and so on. But I don't think the sex workers are doing outdoor sex work. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the other other kinds of modifications need to be. But I, I would guess that it's been damaging to the to the occupation as a whole. Oh sure, for a lot of the sex workers that don't have access to the internet and computers and all that, it's just decimated their businesses. Very much so. With, I see uh, one of the exciting things that I've seen uh, is how sex workers have risen to address community uh, needs and formed mutual aids organizations and projects. And I've never seen this kind of energy from the sex work community. And it's really almost, it feels like it's a model for other communities. So this is, and, and it's developed a new movement. And um I'm just witnessing, you know, and also people who are more vulnerable in, in the context as 
as BIPOC or people of color, trans people come forth, I, I see that growing. And we are, are really like a model in terms of solutions. And I just saw something on the internet, harm reduction uh, behaviors for sex workers. I think, uh, and it was published, it was created with uh, UCSF or, or something like that. So um, there's a lot of work. I have a website about it, actually. So I can put the link in the chat. What's the website on that topic? Well, that is a Google Doc, so I don't. Okay, can't, it doesn't even have one. So, but you, but you it, it's you, very extensive and um, talks about all the things that sex workers are doing. It. Um, you, you now mentioned something that uh, reminded me of a question I was going to ask, which is, we have talked almost exclusively uh, for the past hour or so about female sex workers. What can the three of you share with us about male sex workers? Very little is known by listeners and by the public about male sex workers. Can you shed some light on that particular group? A healthy well, I can't speak for male sex workers, but I certainly <laughs> know enough of them. And I know yeah. that right now during the, the pandemic, it's also decimating their work. But... I mean, there is as much interest in males and trans sex workers as there is in female sex workers. It's just they don't get the attention that females get. In fact, the abolitionists don't care about the male sex workers. They don't even include them in their conversations about us poor, exploited women. Exactly, exactly. That's all they care about is us poor, exploited women. But, um, you know, I I have a lot of male friends who were sex workers and their businesses were were just fine i mean you know we have some long-term activists uh in canada the united Mm -hmm. states and around the world i mean these these guys have been doing sex work as long as i've been around now men who sell themselves to give pleasure to women for a living is that usually usually to men men who sell themselves to give pleasure to other men is more common yes and much less common of men who uh, who who sell themselves to give pleasure to women. Much less common. Yes. Yes. And w- yeah. Yes, you're all shaking your heads. Why is that? Is there not a market? Women are just not likely to want to have to pay for sex. I mean, yes, there are women who do, but let's face it: you can go out there. A woman can go out and get find any guy and, and get laid, and she doesn't have to pay. Whereas Guys have a little bit harder time just because of the whole male-female interaction kind of stuff. They don't want to be deemed to be a sexual predator. I mean, you you get these producers. If if these producers in Hollywood had just paid for sex, they wouldn't all be in trouble. That's right. That's, that's absolutely right. But, I mean, the, the reason I thought there might be a market is because, of course, you're correct that any woman can go out any time and she wants to and pick up somebody and get laid. But that's not the same as hiring a professional. Because supposedly when you hire a professional, you're not going to get a guy who comes in 10 seconds and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you're going to get a, a professional who's going to do you in some way that's going to be supposedly extra uh, uh, pleasurable in order to... Uh, ask for a fee for it, but there isn't. Well, a, also, no, no, there is. There's also not. It's not so easy to find. You know, one of the things that's not so easy to find a 
a man to pay, you know, where it's where it's much easier for a man to find a woman to, pay, you know, a sex worker. It's not so easy for a woman to find a male sex worker. Um, so that's a, a, another thing. And, you know, women have been brought up to get the money from the men, not not to give the money to the men. Yes. In the culture. I remember when when I was in Taiwan, I was very surprised that the people there were explaining how they had a whole scene of male sex workers for women. It was a huge thing. Everybody knew about it. And I thought it was interesting. We don't know about it around the world. I think this is another place where the academy is failing us. Why don't we know about the various kinds of cultures where that happens and the differences? It's, absolutely crazy just along i didn't get to say with the idea about what older women are doing in terms of prostitution and i think that we need so much work we need the institute of sex work studies we need graduate programs focused on it because these questions here you know basically all we can do is conjecture about stereotypes which mm-hmm. we need more serious research it's crazy the world has not brought this forth about such an important subject very true. So when I moved to, I was teaching at the University of Michigan in the late 1960s, and uh, I moved to California. Uh, I took a sabbatical to test it out, and I opened up a clinic on Sacramento Street uh, near Children's Hospital. And um, I went to a social event, and I met a woman, and we became pretty close friends, and her name was Margot St. James. And, uh, and Margot befriended me. And uh, for a short period of time, uh, she actually worked for me in my clinic. She said it was the first straight job she ever had. And uh, it was really fun having her there because you know what Margot was like. And then uh, one, this is a true story. One day I walked into the office. She usually got there a little bit before me in the morning. And I walked into the office and there was Margot uh, sitting at her desk typing uh, totally naked. And... (laughs) And 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 she, she spent the entire day sitting there totally naked. Patients came and went, uh, you know, talked to her, etc. And it was fascinating because nobody ever mentioned a thing. Nobody ever said, "Doctor, do you know your your secretary is sitting there totally?" Na-? It was like the king, you know, the the the, the, the emperor's clothes. Uh, nobody nobody ever mentioned anything about it. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I, walked over, I walked over to Margo and I said, do you notice anything unusual today? And, and she looked at me and she said, well, what do you mean? She said, uh, you're talking about my lack of attire? I said, no, I'm talking about the fact that how many patients of mine and the other doctors in this clinic came and went and not one of them ever mentioned anything about the fact that you're sitting there totally naked. So... <laughs> That's that's my best Margot story, and I'd like each of you, as a tribute to her, to tell a tell a Margot story uh, of uh, of appreciation for who she was, because we know that she has she has left us. Kara, you want to start? Uh, well, my Margot story is so long because I, I, you know, I heard about her before I knew her it was in the mid-70s and my mom was big in the national organization for women she invited margot st james to come and speak to all the housewives on long island and rather than one story i just can say you know i i mean i I joined coyote when i moved to san francisco and it was margot spoke in political high 
haikus. And she was uh, just a fascinating presence and she always got to the, the point of things. And I found it her completely intriguing. And, and she understood that in the movement that we need to prioritize those who are most impacted. She taught that as she and Priscilla Alexander and so many other people um, at the beginning of Coyote. Of course, she was the leader. She launched Coyote. Um, so. And just for your listeners, remember what I've said before. Coyote that Margot St. James started, the Prostitutes Union, is, stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, Coyote. Yeah. I'll give my story a little bit. Um, I met Margot when I had been arrested, and my lawyer, who knew her very well, contacted her for me. Uh, and we got on the phone, and we were talking, like, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's a sex worker, there's a prostitute's rights movement going on and it just was so amazing so um through the years you know when i got arrested uh and and we had a fundraiser because i was going to go to prison and i went twice as a matter of fact um she came down she and another sex worker came down and they put on a we had a fundraiser at the masters club in los angeles which is for actors and margo was just phenomenal but when when i first got involved with Coyote in San Francisco, my main concern was that they were going to think that I was working undercover, that I was still working for the police. That was my, I was terrified that that's what they were going to think. And actually it turned out that that's, they didn't think that at all. And I'm so glad. And for me, my Margo story, you know, Margo really spent more time and I'm a New Yorker, so I didn't have that much time to spend with Margot, but I met Margot. Uh, I had heard about Coyote. I heard about the hookers balls that like 20,000 people attended at the high points um, because I was working, writing for different sex magazines and interviewing people on Times Square. So one day I heard that Margot St. James was going to be at Judson Memorial Church giving a talk. So I thought, oh, okay, I wanna go and, and meet this person. So I went and it was a, a group of, uh, it was Margot and uh, Gail Peterson from Europe. Uh, they were there to address about 150, 200 women uh, activists. There were groups there like Wages for Housework was one group that I remembered. This group had been organized by um, a woman at Judson named Arlene Carmen, who was a sex workers rights advocate at, and, and also the administrator of Judson. So Margot and Gail and Dolores French and Gloria Lockett, all comrades, they were all there to talk about the Second World Horse Congress and to encourage people to go to it. So I was all fired up. And um, I, the, I, did, uh, I was doing some work for Penthouse Forum. I pitched my editor at Forum to send me and Annie Sprinkle to the conference. This was an amazing experience. We could go there as delegates as well as journalists. We were the only people who could do both. And um, it was 150, 160 different women from different countries. There were some also some male prostitutes there in the, in the European parliament. We all had headphones on. We had translators explaining how, what the words blowjob meant in different languages. And this was, you know, this was mind boggling to me. And when I came back to New York, then we had Pony in New York, but I was really helped. It really inspired me to help reorganize Pony with other people in New York. So, um, you know, so 
Margot, even though I didn't get to see her that much because she was on the West Coast, she had a huge influence on my life. And actually, I'm now still, I've gone back and I am a member of Judson, which is a social justice place and they're into the arts and they're not into like a big God trip at least. And so uh, we do like the December 17th vigils there. They're very supportive of sex workers rights and they will be a part of this Margot St. James tribute that we'll be doing on May 1st, uh, which is going to bring together sex workers and allies from different parts of the world. It's an international tribute on May 1st. Um, people can find out about it by going by emailing Margot St. James tribute at St. James Infirmary.org. Say it again, Mar please, Veronica. Margot St. James tribute at St. James Infirmary. Org. Um, and we'll also be starting up a margostjames.com as well. Um, so Margot has died, but her legacy lives on. And, you know, people will be able to find out more about that. Uh, the, the tribute is free. It's a free donations will be ex gladly accepted to help the, the movement carry on. So Margot St. James tribute on May Day, of course, International Workers Day. Veronica, please put me on your email list to get announcements about that. I, I want to keep up with uh, what's going on with regard to Margot. And Great. you also mentioned another friend of mine who I've had on the program a few times, and that's Annie Sprinkle, who's a dear friend. So I want to give a shout out to her. Uh, she didn't make it today, but uh, she'll be on again because she's now you know, t promoting her, her new interest, Echosexuality. Exactly. Uh, yeah, which is, which is a Assuming lot of... Assuming the eco-sexual position, their new book, Annie and Beth Stevens' yeah, new book. Exactly. <laughs> Have you seen her film? You all seen her film, or the two of them going around? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a film. Annie Sprinkle, you can look her up on Google, everybody. So we're coming to the end of our broadcast. Uh, this is a time, if you have any last words or last plug that you want to get in for something... Uh, think it over for a second, and uh, and get it in right now. Otherwise, we're gonna we're going to close. I just want to say that I'm so glad you you invited us old whores on your show, uh, because you know some of the most amazing people I've met, men and women. And as we get older, you know, people forget about us. But you know, there's nothing like a group of old whores. I mean, we have so much history. We have so much camaraderie. We have so many interesting stories to tell about our lives. It's just been amazing to be part of it. I think one of the most important things for me that's going to come across with this program is the warmth that the three of you have brought to our listeners. The warmth of real people. You have a profession that they're uncertain about or they don't know about or some of them are, as you call, abolitionists and some are positive. But nobody who's listening with an open consciousness can miss the warmth that you three have brought to the to the listeners today. And I thank you very much for that. You, okay. you've, you've represented your occupation beautifully with with, uh, with the human feelings. And that is so important to all of us. And I wish I, I, I just wish the listeners could see the, the beautiful expressions on your faces. <laughs> You're three very beautiful women. And you put forth a. Uh, Good vibes in the old days. <laughs> you know and, what the word or originally meant? 
people just they they throw that word around you know the word whore but it originally meant beloved one hmm. and i have to say i love my fellow beloved ones yes beautiful place to end thank you both and thank that, you. you two down here and you up there thank all three of you as a two <laughs> and a you, one Richard. Uh, this has been a pleasure when we like pleasure wonderful <laughs> well we'll have this pleasure again because as you heard i'm going to do a series uh, on this topic and we'll have you back so thank you all also who are listening for joining me for today's broadcast of mind body health and politics with a special thanks to our producer charlie dice our marketing director, Pamela Bieri, and our webmaster, James Albero, whose teamwork make this broadcast possible. This preceding program is brought to you by the Thanksgiving Coffee Company and the founder of Thanksgiving Coffee Company, Paul Katzif. He's a personal friend. He's a social worker and political activist who has improved the lives of millions millions of coffee growers around the world. How did he do that, by the way? He did it by seeing to it that these coffee growers are getting some of the money from the coffee that they grew rather than how they were treated before that when they got hardly anything and then everybody else made the money off the coffee. Paul has created three special blends of mind, body, health, and politics coffee. And I have one right here, if I can get it, and I'll show it to you. There it is. Three, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and he's selling them on the internet. And 20% of the uh, money that he makes is going to the COVID Response Network. That's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. So go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website and buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and then you can support the COVID Response Network. And please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <music>